What I want to talk to you about briefly, mostly from notes, and then we'll have some time for Q&A, is why Aquinas matters in our world today, in the church, but also in the larger civic and secular society. I think probably many of you have read G.K. Chesterton's book, Orthodoxy, and you know about that passage where he says, human beings in the modern West are like people who don't know their own heritage and need to discover it anew as something strange. They're like men who leave their home country of England and they need to travel around to exotic countries and then rediscover the island they live in and discover how interesting and strange it is and then learn to love it again. And that's what we need to do with regards to Christianity. I would say that is very much the case, though, in particular for Catholics with regards to St. Thomas Aquinas. He is among us as the stranger who lives in our home, who helped build it, who knows all its architecture quite well, who none of us speak to and few of us know well. And we find him daunting. But we're in a happy situation with Aquinas, and that's become a kind of popular example from culture. There's that great Freudian moment in The Empire Strikes Back, where Luke Skywalker is being defeated by his terrible enemy and nemesis, Darth Vader, and Darth Vader looks at him and says that line which marks some of us for our whole youth, I am your father. And you know, that, that's sort of a wonderful psychoanalytic people love that because this is a revelation of father Darth Vader. But what if, what if we were to discover that we were, we who thought we were orphans, discover that our father was Thomas Aquinas? And that we who know so little our own doctrinal intellectual tradition have discovered that actually our Father is a person of incredible wisdom and grandeur of thought and insight, and we have to learn from Him. And then the room will become radiant with clarity and light, the opposite sort of direction. But I think that is the truth of our situation, the point is. So I'm going to make five brief points. Here's the first. The crisis of the university and the relevance of Thomas Aquinas. Now, we're all used to thinking, I think, in this context about the crisis of the university in terms of political correctness, identity politics, liberal ideology, kind of flattening of the great <coughs> values of education and narrowing into like rigid, sort of very peculiar political positions. Yes, okay, I agree with all that. And I spend my time wading through a lot of that in, in the actual places where it's happening. But there's an earlier crisis, which is even more, I think, fundamental, and it's the crisis of the unity of knowledge, which touches upon the vocation of the university. What is a university for? How does a university communicate a worldview or a vision of reality that's integrated and united? Well, today, increasingly, it doesn't. A few years ago, at the Dominican House of Studies, we had a young man arrive on our doorstep, a layman, to do an MA in philosophy and theology with us. Well, for the sake of contention protecting identities, we'll call him Elliot, and we'll say he was from an elite Northeastern University, which for the sake of uh, this presentation, we'll call Yale. Um, Elliot from Yale had converted to Catholicism the year before and was interested in studying Thomas Aquinas with Dominicans. I said, well, what, tell me about this. What happened? He said, well, I went to Yale as a son of a Baptist preacher, and I was trying to find kind of the unity of like, what my education was about, thinking about the intelligent Christianity of Yale, and, and I began to, began to pull the threads and realize it was this deeper, vast crisis of meaning and understanding like the unity of all the kinds of classes we take. I take a class in Spanish literature and you know archaeology or anthropology and you know Locke's political philosophy and neuroscience, and I couldn't figure out how it all hung together. And so then I wrote my senior thesis 
On the 20th century, Christian attempts to respond to the crisis of meaning in the modern world, especially focusing on Kierkegaard and Dostoevsky and some Heideggerian thinkers. I said, well, how did, what did you conclude from all that? He said, I concluded there's no adequate moral response. Sorry, there's no adequate modern response to the crisis of university culture. And what we need to do, perhaps, is go back and discover the ancient philosophical wisdom of Aristotle and then its interpretation by Aquinas to try to figure out what the deeper structure of knowledge and meaning is. I said, I, I, you know, this is like, this sort of made my year. This is a very precocious kid. But I, I have since noted that I'm meeting people like this regularly from these elite schools who feel like they haven't received a deep, unified formation in thinking about reality. And I think they are the canaries in the coal mine of our secular age who are basically smart enough to figure out that something is not working out in highly politicized, highly disunified, highly specialized, but unintegrated formation of receiving universities. Now Thomas Aquinas has a very, I think, insightful and helpful understanding of the unity of knowledge that speaks exactly to our crisis. He thinks, for example, so you some brief domestic ideas as we go along, there are three kinds of speculative knowledge, mathematics, philosophy, nature, and metaphysics, and they kind of go deeper and deeper into reality. So, one fundamental way to understand reality is through mathematics and mathematically based descriptions, including through empirical measures and exact sciences. There's not a very developed modern science at the time of Aquinas, but he sees what it is. And he can talk about it as a form of knowing. He says, then you go into deeper questions about nature. Is, is a living thing different than a non-living thing? Modern science can't tell you the, the real philosophical answer to that question. Is a human being different from another kind of animal because of the spiritual soul? Then you can go to a deeper thing beyond philosophy of nature, which is metaphysics and like does the reality around us suggest the reasonability of belief in a creator and the reasonability of being open to divine revelation. So that philosophy and religion need not be opposed. Science and philosophy need not be opposed. And then Aquinas starts building out into all these other disciplines like ethics, political philosophy, literature, arts, poet, poetics, and showing how they can all be integrated into this unified worldview. Now, mastering this is not something you do in the you know, an afternoon, but it's really intelligible. And if you get a kid from a university to study this for a few hours with you and go through it systematically, it's like watching medicine be applied to a sick body and the sick body regaining its health. You can see their minds feeling healed. And then they're saying, okay, there's actually, my mind is made to see order of truth and reality. I kind of sense that. And now I'm finding out how to do this. So, second reason I think that's more internal to the church, Aquinas is very important. For various reasons, sociological, physiological, um, we live in an age in the Catholic Church of deep doctrinal amnesia. Now, amnesia can know degrees, you know. It's like amnesia where you're not quite sure about who you are or where you come from. But I think the deeper amnesia is you don't even like in the movie The Morning, you don't even know how to find out who you are. <laughs> You don't even know where to go. <clears throat> where do we go in our own very doctrinally anemic age to find out what the sound doctrine of the church is in a highly accessible, highly intelligible place? Well, you can't, I would say you can't do worse, if you could do worse than Aquinas, but it's too weak, you can't do better. You know, you can't do better than Aquinas. I remember when I, I converted to Catholicism 25 years ago, 27 years ago, and I remember I met a Benedictine monk who said to me, you should think of reading an article of Aquinas every day, one article from Suman every day. I didn't do it. I did it later, more than that. You know, but, but the thing is that um, 
I, I do think that if you read something like Aquinas on what is the proper effect of every one of the seven sacraments, there are seven sacraments that have different effects of grace. I don't, I'm not going to give you a test and see how many of you can rattle off the distinctive and proper effect of every one of the seven sacraments. But I think you could read Aquinas on that in a week. And then the question is, you can get other people to read it, communicate with you about it, talk to you about it. There's a, there's a bunch of young women who are recent college graduates who live in the dorm next to me, at the, dorm, the apartment building next to me in Washington, D.C., who get together once a month and they read articles of the Summa over, with, it's called Stouts, it's Summa and Stouts, and they drink beer with their friends and they, they study Aquinas together. Stouts and Summa? Yeah, you go to that. So anyway, um, and it, there, it's, it's kind of healthy counterculture. It's not as nerdy as it sounds. But um, I do think, like, when I, when I see young people, like, actually, that should tell us something. That we are seeing a, a kind of spiritually starved young generation who are starting to say, well, how do I get my mind around the doctrines of the church? Well, let's read St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, I was at a conference at Princeton Theological Seminary that we ran some years ago where we had a lot of the brain trust of the young evangelicals in America in a room in a conference with us for oh, four days. So like the 80 you know, most brilliant young evangelicals doing their doctorates in theology. And I was talking to one of them who was like 24 years old and I said, he went to he'd gone to Wesleyan University in Indiana. I said, what was your main intellectual question when you were like a junior in college three years ago? You know, and he said, well, really, I was concerned about Western Arminianism as it, as it pertains to Calvinist's tulip doctrine and different understandings of grace, free will, predestination, biblical inspiration, so forth. I was sitting thinking, because I deal with like, these elite Catholic kids who are 24 all the time, thinking, I don't think I've come across kids who go to David Mass who are thinking like this doctrinally. They're going to talk about what are the natural law arguments vis-a-vis -vis for the culture of life, for traditional marriage, for religious liberty and so forth. And of course, we absolutely need all that. We're very strong on natural law stuff, and that's one of the reasons in Washington I see evangelicals converting Catholicism, because they see the intellectual power of Catholic reason. But we also need to know what we really mean as Catholics when we say Christ is our Savior, or I believe in Christ as God and man, or I believe in original sin. The atonement. Sacrifice the mass. We all are good of goodwill. We kind of believe it all, but how do we communicate it if we haven't studied it fundamentally? Aquinas gives us a way to communicate the basics to intellectual people who can become um, people who communicate the faith to others. A third a principle. We live in an age of, I would call it, deep despair over the uses of human freedom. It's just one way of talking about the problem of liberalism. Liberalism is a kind of a baseline, minimal humanism of human free will. You, you do yoga. You're a Muslim. You're a secular atheist. You're a Roman Catholic. I'm a Democrat, liberal, whatever. And we all try to find ways to get along, and you can do what you want to do, I can do what I want to do, and we live in this kind of, it's a kind of ther climate of therapeutic minimalism. Like the, the best therapy for all of us is that we have a minimal doctrine of human freedom to promote the freedom of everybody and baseline libertarianism. And it does have its advantages of keeping us from um, you know, trying to exterminate one another or eradicate one another. Although it, politically it seems like we're still trying to eradicate one another quite. Uh, we haven't found ways to have uh, deep concord. There's a kind of despair in all that though because what you're despairing about is that you can get a real 
deep, unified account of what human freedom is for. When you look at the origins of our contemporary sort of minimal theories of human freedom, they come from Descartes. Because Descartes thinks that freedom is characterized above all by a left choice for anything you want. You know, the freedom is, you're not compelling me and I can do what I want to do. That is part of freedom. Freedom of choice is part of human freedom. But Thomas Aquinas has a much, much more robust and interesting and deep and accurate theory of human freedom where it, it, it all leads with love. Yes, we're making choices all the time. What are we choosing? We're choosing things we want and love and desire. And so then the real criteria becomes, what do you love? What do you desire? What do you choose? What do you pursue? And what kind of person does that make you into? Then you get into questions of using your freedom to build up character. Certain kinds of choices are going to make you gravitate around things you love one way. Other kinds of choices will make you gravitate, gravitate around things you love another way. And you do become, in some way, the servant of the things you love. And it does make you a certain kind of person. And that's where you build up virtues or vices. Virtues are just regular patterns of choosing the things that are going to lead us to authentic happiness and truly authentic human love. If you do a doctor of philosophy, you do it because you have a love for the truth. You build the habit of study. You learn how to, to study philosophy accurately, communicate, etc. And you become a philosopher. You become a certain kind of person. If you love robbing banks, you become a different kind of person. You get really good at that. And that, that really intelligent way of robbing banks is called vice. Most people don't have that vice, but we have vices. And Aquinas allows you to see how human freedom has constructive uses. Our problem is that the Catholic Church, our brand publicly is, we are the people of rules who have an arbitrary moralism imposed on other people, mean and limit their freedom. That's a very stupid story about Roman Catholicism. Not really, I don't think it's our fault. I think there's other nefarious forces at work giving us that portrait. But to, to respond to that, Thomas is very helpful because he helps you show people, to use an idea from one of the California Dominicans, that becoming a moral person is a lot more like being a jazz musician than it is being a stern and voting figure. Be a great jazz musician. You have to be an extremely technical player from a high jazz. This guy's from Bay Area, he's from Bay Area jazz version and so on. If you're a really good jazz artist, you, you are really good at playing set pieces, but you are so good at adapting to new circumstances, when the other person changes the register, you can improvise. And that's why the improvisation requires immense talent. This is what the moral life is like when we're really schooled in the use of our human freedom. We can do the normal things, like be just, temperate, prudent, courageous, show some strength, fortitude, patience. But then we get into hard cases. We know how to improvise morally to grow love, to be in the service of love and the communion of purpose. A fourth thing is religion. Um, it's not so straightforward to be religious at any time in human, the human history of the human race, but really in our own time, we are looking at two Two problems that are confront us about attitudes towards being religious in the popular culture, and they overlap to some extent, but they're a little different, and you know them both. One is that we see this increasingly evident conflict between, um, how let's call it, religion without due reference to reason and human freedom, that is most typically typified by our religious fanaticism and terrorism. And we can say all we want about those correct fact matters. This is causing a huge crisis of confidence in religious traditions. 
And if you spend any time talking to secular people, they're going to bring up Islam and they're going to say they're going to Islamic terrorism, and they're going to transfer to the Crusades, and they're going to say religion needs to fanaticism and totalitarianism. These kinds of things. Well, you know, there, there are unjust ways of religious people treating non-religious people or one another. And there are a lot of examples of it in human history and in our own era. But the counter-reaction is, of course, of secularism that wants to eradicate religion from the public square and remove it to kind of really um, restrained places of exercise and free up civic institutions from any influences of religion in any overt way. It's probably not going to work or not work completely, but it's very aggressive and virulent. That's one conflict between secularism and religious irrationalism. And then you've got another issue, which is um, the fear of institutional formats for religion, like when you talk to young people and say, I'm spiritual, I believe there's something, but I don't want to be religious, I don't want to be constrained by creed, I don't want to be constrained by rituals, man-made human operations and institutions. Um, that's very angelic. Angelicism is a bad word for the because we always emphasize with the point that we're animals, and so we're not angels, and animals that live in their bodies to be religious in their bodies, not just spiritual. You know, being just spiritual is really dangerous. It means like you wouldn't have your body anymore, and you don't think it's real, <coughs> or, or religion is so abstract, you don't incarnate it in your body in any way. Now, Aquinas asked the question of the Middle Ages. You might think this is not controversial. Is it natural to be religious? And I bet if I had a little radar gun and looked inside your soul with it, I would do say you'd be nodding. Yeah, it's natural to be religious. I'm a little cat, it's natural to be religious. It was, it was controversial in the latest because actually a lot of people held, including Bonaventure, that to be religious is a grace. It's a grace of the Holy Spirit who gives you the grace of charity to be religious by loving God by grace. Right? Is it natural to be religious or religious by grace? Aquinas' answer to the question is sort of both. He says fundamentally it is natural to be religious. But in, without the healing effects of grace, we tend to do one of two attitudes that are both very dangerous. Now, this is extremely contemporary. Without grace to heal our human hearts, we will tend to either become religiously affiliated with things that are not God, the same with our ultimate value or meaning in things that are not that are created. That's a secularism in a nutshell, really. Orienting your life towards things less than God as your kind of fundamental aim in life. Or we will worship God, or either worship what is not God, or a wrong idea of God, or worship God wrongly in ways that are superstitious. We call it super, the vice of superstition. Like, he gives the example of human sacrifice, which is not a different than suicide. So either you prioritize as primary what's not God, or you worship God in the wrong way, or worship God in the wrong ideas about Him. And this is why, for Aquinas, we need grace to heal the human soul so that we can love God and love all things in a rightly oriented and reasonable way. Religion according to reason. Now, concretely, what that comes down to often is the sacramental life. And Aquinas, when he looks at the sacraments, why do you these need seven sacraments to sort animals? So we become religious through our bodies, through signs, through rituals, by living in community with other people, by being in communion in collective ways. We're not angels living off in the spiritual corner of the universe alone. We're radically religious spiritual animals. And we need to enact our religion in our bodies. And for that, it's fitting that God instituted in Christ of divine origin sacraments. So that we can worship God in non-superstitious ways according to reason. You know, it says in the first 
Eucharistic prayer in the Roman canon in Latin that we offer God the sacrifice that is rational. And that's a big theme in the thoughts of the church that one is aware of. That the sacrifice mass is rational religion. It's an interesting piece of classic argument that the religion of reason is also the religion of the Eucharist. And Aquinas has this whole theory about this. It's really helpful to get people to study this who are the I'm spiritual but not religious set, or I don't want religious totalitarianism, or to avoid religion we have to be secular. The sort of sacramental rationality of Aquinas is beautiful. The last point, uh, contemplation. Okay, so I've avoided autobiography, but I'll tell you one thing. I went to Brown University in the 1990s, and I became Catholic there, which is not a typical decision. And it's a very liberal university, very politically activist, okay? And it took me a few years to be able to articulate it after I become Catholic. Like, one of the things that bothered me, I had many fine teachers and good experiences around. But one of the things that bothered me that I couldn't articulate until years later when I studied Aquinas was that I always felt that my, I came there just to try to find the truth, and my mind was actually being, being taught, I was being taught to make my mind subservient to a practical political aim, which was the primary purpose of my education. In other words, it's a utilitarian concept of, of knowledge. We study in order to transform the world to political activism. The primacy of practical intellect. And I think that's one of the other things that's a death knell for the university, uh, if it can't figure that out, that the, that the mind's native home is the search for the truth, and to follow that wherever that leads. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be practical, obviously we have to be extremely practical for 800 reasons, and developing practical reasons, integral, I live in seminary, I live in seminary, we have to take people who are often very interested in and get and bring them up to speed on practical reasons in very significant ways that are going to help people with their life, need to be practical. But the deeper sort of uh, root of the intellect and its higher sort of aim and stem is to seek the truth. And that means we fundamentally are means of contemplation. Aquinas shows this and argues about it. delineates this very beautifully. And there's degrees of contemplation. Now you can't actually eliminate this from the human intellect. What you can do is abase it. And I'm not saying this very morally because I'm one of the culprits. Where is contemplation in our culture? It's the screen. We contemplate screens. I'm doing it, you're doing it. We're looking at our cell phones, we're watching Netflix, we're on the plane looking at stuff. On the plane, I don't do this, but lots of people are playing a game where there's apples and oranges exploding. And, it's, and it, you know, they've got hours on the plane, they're playing this game, and they're contemplating the sort of sensory delights, maybe relatively innocent sensory delights of playing a game or seeing something. That's more towards, of course, our animal side. No matter how clever the writers of the latest HBO series, which, you know, my religious vows don't allow me to watch. I, maybe your baptism of don't allow you to watch either. But no matter how clever those guys are, this is not high philosophy. Let's not kid ourselves. This is a place where we find a kind of animality in ourselves to rest at the end of a busy work day or whatever. You know, there's higher things, you know. So I'm not moralizing it. We all need places to rest. I'm going to play solitaire or listen to music. But, you know. but the higher kind of contemplation is something like, look, think about a grade upward. You go look at art, you know. And, well, maybe that's pretentious. I, don't, I think there's ways of like looking at art that are you know, maybe not too pretentious. Just seeing what you think is beautiful and intelligent. I go to the National Gallery and look at some paintings. I don't try to get too 
hyper-theoretical about it, but you know, you are looking at something sensory you're contemplating, or you take a walk in the Appalachian Mountains, or Napa Valley, and you contemplate the beauty of the world around you. That's a kind of sensory contemplation that's deeper. Okay? Then think about like contemplating a person. You have a, a good friend with whom you have deep conversations, or maybe, in the case of a couple, a man and woman, you know, you really love this person and you gaze at the person because you love them. That's like, those are two different kinds of conflict. There's, there's a kind of way in which the mind is resting in the presence of the friend, or the mind is resting in love of the beloved. And that's very human. Angels don't have that. But that's typically, a, it's a spiritual thing. Animals, other animals don't have that, angels don't have that. It's kind of the repose of the friendship, the repose of the beloved. And then there's the highest forms of contemplation, which is to contemplate the truth in philosophy and contemplate the truth of Christ in thinking about the mystery of God or go deeper to adoration and contemplate the radiant presence in the darkness of faith of Christ, resurrected from the dead, present among us in the Eucharist, and to try to contemplate the Holy Trinity. It's a poor contemplation. We are all poor in the face of the mystery. We're beggars. But in the light of faith, in the darkness of faith, we can contemplate the Holy Trinity. We can begin to nourish our mind off the food of the eternal word, who is the light of our mind. And Aquinas has this whole way of thinking about this continuity all the way down from you know the computer screen, and she knows about like sensory contemplation, a very low kind, all the way up to contemplating the Holy Trinity and contemplating Christ's presence in the Eucharist and that kind of thing. I think this is I love this country. I've spent a long time overseas. I think America has an incredible vitality, productivity, creativity, activity. But we, you know, we are sometimes weaker than some of our European forebears. Like they're weak in learning to just delight in truth. And it's important because you know if you value yourself, we all value ourselves. If we lie ourselves, we don't value ourselves based on productivity or what we achieve. We care about what we achieve. It's important to us. But our self-love cannot be based just on that, and our love of other people can be based on that. In the end, to be made in the image of God is to be a human being made to seek the truth and to seek to love God for his own sake. In heaven, they're not going to ask us what our degrees were, or you know, even the great things we did for the church, for other people, for our family. It's going to be like in the background. The real foreground is going to be enjoying God for God's sake. And the practice in this life is contemplation. And it's what, in a way, it's what I'm not saying I'm going to be good at it, I'm going to be very bad at it, to be honest with you. But it teaches us how to prepare to die. Because it also teaches us how to prepare to live after death. To live after death with God, to contemplate and delight in God. And so there's a whole way in which that deeper wisdom can give stability to us in an age of deep anxiety. In an age of deep anxiety, the peace of the soul can be restored by recovering the contemplative orientation of the soul to God. And Aquinas is a mentor and friend to those who seek to become contemplative. So, I'll finish where I began. Aquinas is a great mentor and teach us, I think, to cultivate what's best in ourselves in our own era in a way that's deeply evangelical and will help us convert many people to the truth of Catholic faith. Uh, there's a Syrian monk in the 4th century who said the Christian in the world has to have developed in him or herself a little chapel of the heart. This is the external chapel where the Eucharist is kept, but then we need the interior chapel where Christ dwells in our hearts. We need to bring that chapel out with us into the world. I would say with Thomas Aquinas, we also are able to develop a little chapel of the mind. 
to develop as Catholics a mind where God dwells, a mind where God is our friend, is with us, and allows us to bring the light of Christ to illumine out into our world around us. And so, uh, I don't think we have a better guide than the clients. I think he's successful. And the good news is, there's a huge resurgence of interest in clients. I went to graduate school in the 90s, and I said I was writing my doctorate twice. People said, do you know what century it is? And now they say, oh, well, you're ahead of the curve. You, know? you, 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 you foresaw, I didn't foresee all. But what's happening is there's all these young people studying clients. And so we have a tremendous resource here to galvanize evangelization. I'd encourage all of you to learn more about the Institute and talk about the leg or myself, but I'll open the floor now briefly for a few questions.